those things that we have now available that are renewable uh, that can be worked in quite a different way into the economy of the United States. Which are concerned primarily with the design of nuclear power plants and this type of thing. Hi, I'm Pamela Wildstein. I'm Wyatt McAdonstein. I'm Ben Hilborn. I'm James Corey. You're listening to Intermediate. 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 To Intermediate. Intermediate. The place for people trying to get into or already working on distributed energy resources and clean energy. This is the podcast that makes it easy to learn how the grid actually works beyond the obvious. Hey everyone, this is James Gordy. This is episode three of the Intermediate Podcast. Uh, today we're focused on solar. Um, in addition to myself and Ben Hilborn, who's a regular on the show, we have two guests today. It's our first guest and we're really excited. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves, maybe starting with Carl. Uh, sure. Yeah. So I'm Carl Lennox. Um, Currently the VP of product at Sunrun. Um, been in and around the solar industry for about 20 years, um, starting in a uh, you know in an engineering product development role and then moving into um, product, product management and strategy. Um, and uh, I've seen a lot of stuff, so I'm hoping to uh, chat about that today. I'm excited. Awesome. And I'm Spencer Fields. I'm the Director of Insights at Energy Sage. I have uh, not quite 20 years of experience in solar like Carl does, but I have uh, 10 years in clean energy. I started out as a consultant at Synapse Energy Economics before moving to Energy Sage five years ago. And even in the last five years alone or 10 years, uh, the pace of change for clean energy and solar in particular has been truly remarkable. So also very excited to be on the show and thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so before we break into the core content here, I thought we could um, get warmed up a bit. And so we have two kind of like icebreaker questions here. Um, maybe we'll each let you answer uh, kind of in the same order we did the intros. Um, the first is just, you know, for you, where this show is all about learning about energy and DERs beyond the obvious. Um, what's your kind of go-to way about learning about this, this sort of information, Carl? Oh, wow. Interesting. So I, I think for me, uh, it's like, it's like the sea I swim in, like, to be very honest. Um, uh, I, I, to kind of learn about what's new and, and what's coming, I actually, you know, spend a lot of reasonable amount of time um, connecting with startups and, and innovators in the space who are kind of thinking about problems in new ways. Sometimes they're thinking about problems, um, the same way as somebody has thought about that problem 10 years ago and um, maybe they've figured out you know a way to overcome a barrier that um, was insurmountable at that time um, i also obviously you know keep up on the media sources that people tend to follow in this space i think canary media is a great one for example um but uh yeah just in general you know um just keeping the ears open eyes open talking to smart folks as much as i can and um always you know, challenging myself to challenging my priors. That's, that's one of the disadvantages of being in the space so long as you, you do come with a lot of priors, um, which is sometimes good and, um, you know, but it's always important to challenge those. So, um, do try to do that, um, every day. So I don't know. That's my approach. You know, it's interesting. The, 
I'm, I'm absolutely with Carl in, in terms of paying attention to the main media sources, really Canary Media, um, obviously paid attention to GTM before Canary, but love what everybody's done when they built the new publication there. I think beyond that, there are a couple of newsletters I follow, obviously pay attention to what's happening in the DER task force and the Slack channel. I think that's a really remarkable resource. And obviously that's how we all connected to get here. Um, but my favorite newsletter in the space is the Climate Tech VC newsletter, which if you're not subscribed to is really, really wonderful. And they just raised some money to turn it into uh, a sort of a bigger platform and, and begin to build their voice even more. So I'm excited to see what will happen with with them. Um, but that's that's the main way. And then and then I think beyond that, it's getting asked questions by friends, family members, coworkers, other folks in the space and um, thinking that I know a lot about solar, clean energy. And then as soon as somebody asks me a question, realizing that, in fact, there's still a whole heck of a lot more to learn. So um, like Carl said, keeping keeping ears open and and really trying to listen to what it is that people are asking. Yeah, and, I, and I'll add to that too. I think so. First of all, I should have also pitched in on on the DR on the DR task force um, in general and the Slack community um, specifically. It's just a great way to um, to connect and really ask you know all sorts of people who have tons and tons of experience um, on really any topic. Um, I'd also say that to the point of like talking to friends and family and things like that, um, neighbors, people in the street, <laughs> you tell you know you're interested in this stuff is a really good way to learn about how people who are not in the space look at the space and the kind of questions they have. Um, that's uh, continues to be eye opening for me, frankly, um, because it, um, it shows you what people really care about. Um, and that's ultimately what, what we need to care about. Right. And so, um, it's not exactly learning about solar, but it's learning about how other people think about solar and other, um, DRs. Yeah. And I mean, I think, all of us here, right? We're always learning. Uh, you know, we think we know, and then people ask the question, like Spencer said. Um, Carl, do you have a specific aspect of DERs and energy in general that you're still like exploring right now or curious about? Yeah, for sure. I think you know one area um, of, of keen interest, you know, to me is the the vehicle to grid space. Um, I mean, it's an emerging space. I think there's it's one of those areas where actually there's probably more questions than answers uh, for for everybody, right? And there's still a lot of things that need to be worked out. Um, so it's one of those areas where, you know, there's just a lot of inquiry happening about how should it be and um, what are the constraints that are real? What are the constraints that are regulatory or there for historical reasons? Why are those constraints in place? Um, so that would be like, for me, the top of mind. Um, but, you know, there's many examples of that. I think like one of the interesting things about the DER space is that there is like, there's like layers upon layers of sort of historical, um, like just practice and rules and regulations um, that can sometimes actually be kind of hard to bottom out. Like if you, if you really want to understand like why, why do we have this rule in place? Um, you know, oftentimes you learn it's kind of a rule of thumb and then it's like, well, why is this rule of thumb in place? Where did that come from? Um, and actually, it can be, it can take like several um, levels of digging to kind of bottom that out. And then you sort of realize like maybe like, oh, but does that still make sense? And if not, like what can we do about it, right? So I think I think there, there, that's the another sort of class of open questions that's always intriguing to me. 
Yeah, it's super interesting. And, and, you know, you sort of pulled the words right out of my mouth, Carl, with vehicle to grid. I think bi-directional charging in, in particular for electric vehicles certainly opens up a lot of opportunities. It also opens up a ton of questions. I think, you know, even today, a colleague of mine was asking, hey, why did you select the level two charger that you did? Why didn't you select a bi-directional EV charger? And I think there's this sort of already this misconception around what an EV can do. And obviously Sunrun mm-hmm. is, is working directly to try to change, take that misconception and turn it into a reality. But, um, you know, when Ford ran a Super Bowl commercial two years ago with the F-150 Lightning Electric and said, this will power your home in a blackout. At that time, that was not true, right? Like that didn't exist in the US. And so there's there's this sort of difference between the reality of the, the, the products and getting closer to what it is that consumers want. And that's always been the case in solar, right? At the beginning of solar, mm-hmm. there was this notion that, oh, if you have solar panels on your roof, you'll still have power in, the, in, in a blackout. That is not how it works. Then it became solar yeah. plus storage. Oh, you'll be able to power your whole home in the event of a blackout. And for most folks, that's not the case, or it's not the case without a lot of batteries. That doesn't mean that you don't have resiliency in the event of an outage, but it's it's there's sort of this this missing ten to fifteen percent of the consumer perception of how solar works. And now finally we're getting to the point where actually this technology is going to provide the benefits and the services that people want. And so I think that that sort of gets to what I'm really interested in in this space, which is primarily virtual power plants because all of these all of these distributed energy resources when you start stacking them in an individual home or business now all of a sudden you have a, a fully operational power plant in your home and that can provide a ton of different value streams to a utility to a grid operator and understanding how to monetize that appropriately for the homeowner to make it worth their time to forego comfort, to not forego comfort, and to make it worth their while to actually participate in these programs. Because I think there's a ton that they could do, but have they haven't seen a ton of success yet, in part, in my mind, and Carl, you'll come from a different place than me on this, in part, in my mind, because the incentive structure just isn't there for a homeowner to say, okay, yeah, utility, you can you can come use my battery 20, 50 times a year in exchange for 150 bucks over the course of the year when I'm getting a battery to be as far removed from the utility as possible. So that's that's sort of the space that I'm, I'm interested in seeing how we move from taking what's a really cool idea and has potentially huge ramifications for the clean energy build out in this in this country in terms of deferred transmission and distribution costs in terms of integrating more renewables etc cetera, etc cetera, and turning that into something that consumers actually want and actually start to adopt yeah spencer i you know i 100 agree with you actually and it is to the you know to our earlier discussion like it actually is like one of my huge open questions about DER is like why is it so difficult to make a you know uh, a scalable viable um, consumer friendly virtual power plant offering now of course we're doing that um, in various places around the country Um, they're always a little bit bespoke so like why is that 
why is it that it's so difficult to work with utilities to create these programs in some cases? Like, why is there incentive misalignment here? What can we do about that, right? So these are like, these are sort of existential almost or almost philosophical questions to some degree, right? But like, um, so it's not really about facts so much as it is about um, just political realities, economic realities, um, how to kind of cut through these, um, you know, uh, what do you call them? Well, I would say hairy problems. <laughs> anyway, you know, just, just cut, cut through the Gordian knot of, of some of these like areas where I think, you know, the solar energy has historically kind of been in opposition, you know, and utilities have found themselves in opposition. And I think, you know, how do you find yourself so that you're actually actually have that alignment to deliver like it's really the best experience for the customer? Because what you don't want, and from a technology standpoint, I think over the next, you know, five years or so, we're going to see that it's going to be viable, right, and economically feasible for some customers to leave the grid if they want to, right? We don't, nobody wants that. That's not a good thing, right? The network effects that you get from interconnection, you know, um, with your neighbors and your community and your, you know, uh, the via the electrical grid is valuable. Um, and so like, but you need to be able to deliver that value to customers. They need to be able to see the value, right? Um, and uh, and you have to you have to share that value appropriately among different parties. And so that is like, I think, a huge open question for our industry. And I really resonate with that as someone who's, you know, been in energy about maybe two or three years, um, spend so much time and energy and effort just trying to like learn things as they exist and how they are so I can orient myself that I don't have as much brain capacity to like synthesize and think about like, what should it be? How can I drive it in the right way? Because it's just such a steep learning curve, right? And like you're trying to figure all these things out, much less drive them in the right place. So there's a lot of power in these detailed things that are um, they're pretty nuanced. So like a number of years ago, there was a perception or a kind of a received truth in the industry, um, broadly speaking, that um, you could only get distributed solar, right? Like no more than 15% penetration. Like you're never going to be able to get beyond 15% of your um, power on like a, on a distribution circuit from, from solar. And, you know, people are saying, well, we're, we're going to reach that <laughs> pretty soon, you know? So, you know, in the next, in the next few years, like what, what, where's this coming from? Is this really true? Right. And so you start to dig into it and what you find out is this. So where does 15% come from? So 15% came from this idea that um, in a normal uh, distribution circuit, typically right on average, your peak loads and your minimum loads so your, your minimum loads are about one third of your peak loads, right? And so at the time in particular, like they really only measured annual peak loads. So on every circuit, they had a number and that number was the like annual peak load. They'd say, cool, divide that by three, all right? And you're like an estimated minimum load. And then to be safe, we're gonna cut that in half. And then we're gonna round down 15%. That's where this came from. And moreover, it actually wasn't a hard and fast rule. It was actually intended originally to be a screen so if you were above that 50% threshold, that kicked you into a situation where you needed to do studies and things like this. But it was it was received as a sort of like, you know, wisdom from, you know, the gods, right? Um, well, it turns out that like that's, you know, it's a lot more nuanced than that. And we worked through um, how to how to represent solar more appropriately. Um, by the way, that it made no sense for solar because your minimum load is usually in the middle of the night, right? Um, 
So, so as you work through, you know, you kind of work through those things and you realize like, oh, actually, yeah, we can easily go to 100% of the minimum load or we can go even higher than that. And that's actually been, you know, revised in interconnection uh, codes all around the country um, to kind of take this new knowledge into account. But that all starts with like just sort of questioning, like, where did this number come from? Yeah. And so to jump into it, um, what I thought we could do. <laughs> yeah. No, this is great. Um, I'd say like this is our first episode with guests and like very clear to me. Um, listening to you guys go back and forth like definitely we should have more guests because just like the the level of like expertise really flows through beyond like us and our like current level um so what i thought we could do spencer i found an article from energy sage where you give a brief overview of and you know shout out to you all for your content you do a great job it's definitely helped me a lot um the history of solar just so good people kind of have some like historical context and then if we could, you know, bonus points, like overlay on, like at the different key milestones in history, kind of talk about like the cost. So people could kind of understand like how we've gotten to where we are today of solar being just such like a fantastic and economic solution. Yeah, totally. And uh, thanks for the Energy Sage shout out and for, for coming and reading our content. Uh, yeah, so the, the history of solar is pretty interesting. I mean, I think there's a little bit of debate around who the the inventor of solar cells or solar panels truly is. Um, there are some folks who credit a French scientist named Edmund Becquerel, um, who in sort of the 1800s found, uh, found the photovoltaic effect. Um, there's some folks who in the 1870s discovered that selenium had this photoconductive potential, which basically means that when sunlight photons hit this material, the electrons start to basically bounce around. Um, 1883, uh, somebody by the name of Charles Fritz produced the first solar cells from selenium wafers. And so some people credit that man with the invention of solar cells. Um, but the way that we think about solar cells today, they're made with silicon, not selenium. And so some folks point to Bell Labs in 1954 as the inventors of the, the true inventors of PV technology, because that was the first instance of solar technology that you know, could actually power an electric device for several hours of a day. Um, and so I don't have the exact cost of what that, that particular panel was, but in 1954, that, that first ever silicon solar cell could convert sunlight at 4% efficiency. Whereas today, solar panels on the market, like the best in class residential solar panels are over 22, 23% maybe even approaching 24%. So pretty significant change in the, the quality of uh, solar cells in the technology over time. I'm actually curious. I haven't, I haven't looked recently, but what is that, what is that curve looking like? Um, I assume that there was some sort of kind of accelerating you know, exponential of, uh, okay, we're getting rid of the, the early bugs um, and having some, some big leaps and bounds. And, I feel like the past few years it's really been, you know, half a percent, point one percent, you know, increases in efficiency, you know, every year. Um, what is what is that looking like, and what do you think 
is it is going to take to change that? Yeah, I'll I'll go first. Then I'm very curious to get your take on this as well, Carl. I, you know, we see sort of in the residential space in particular, we see very incremental gains in terms of efficiency um, for solar panels. A lot of the announcements that you see around lot larger and higher watt class solar panels. So, you know, a solar panel is rated in terms of the number of watts that it can put out. Um, and then also we, we talk about costs in the solar industry in terms of dollars per watt, the same way that you talk about dollars per square foot when you're looking at an apartment or a house. Um, so watt is, is sort of our standard metric here. You know, even, even five, 10 years ago, we were looking at solar panels that were under 200 watts. I was actually at a solar install today that was using 405 watt solar panels that are the same form factor effectively as those older solar panels that were 200 watts. When you see these higher watt class, power class solar panels that are coming out that are 500 watts, 600 watts, they're huge. They're gigantic. Like they take up more space than a typical residential solar panel does, which is, you know, a typical residential solar panel is about four by six. So it's about the size of a hockey net um, for, for comparison's sake. Um, whereas these larger ones are going to be, you know, maybe even eight feet tall. Um, so in terms of where the efficiency is, is coming from, certain folks in, in labs have modeled efficiencies over 30 or 35% with perovskite. I, I'm probably butchering the, the, how to actually pronounce that. Um, cells in that technology. But in my mind, you know, most, most homes today, sorry, let me step back. Solar panels are powerful enough that by covering the side of your roof that faces the most southward, you can power more than your electricity needs for an entire year for an individual home, right? So most homes have 500 square feet or more of usable roof space, and you're gonna be able to fit eight, nine, 10 kilowatts of solar in that space. And that's going to produce more than an individual home is going to use over the course of the year. Certainly with net metering, that changes the, the way that you calculate the benefits and the credits and, and the value of solar. But from my perspective, I think that there isn't as much of a need for efficiency gains in residential panels in particular because they're already powerful enough to accomplish what they set out to do, which is power an entire home. Now, maybe that equation changes as folks electrify more and more of their homes, right? So if you move from an internal combustion engine car to an electric vehicle, now you're adding a significant load, especially if you're charging at home, you know, once every two weeks, once every week, once every day, that's that all of a sudden is the largest appliance in your home by a mile. You know, if you're trying to fill a, a 70, 80, 100 kilowatt hour battery every day compared to the average residential usage of 30 kilowatt hours a day, right? So that's that could change the, the calculus pretty significantly. Once you install heat pumps, if you move to induction stoves, as you electrify more things in your home, you're going to use more electricity. Maybe now you become space constrained again, and there is this need to really push for higher 
efficiency solar panels. But again, Carl, I'm really curious to get your take on that too. Yeah, Spencer, no, that's exactly right. I mean, I think efficiency is is actually a really interesting topic to dig into because, again, kind of coming back to how consumers think about solar, um, for many people, the first thing they think of is efficiency as a proxy for like technological sophistication, as a proxy for quality, um, when in fact it's a tech. It's like it's almost like when you know you think about like when you used to buy a computer and you would care about like the you know this how much ram it had or like the the clock speed of the chip right nobody cares about that anymore right because it reached a point where like it didn't have a practical difference right and efficiency is kind of like that in a lot of cases um you know the all efficiency is impacting is basically the physical space the amount of you know kilowatts that you need takes up on your roof so if you can get the amount of kilowatts on your roof doesn't matter what the efficiency is um as spencer points out if you start to run into space constraints that efficiency becomes valuable to you, and that's where that's where it matters. And and, and electrification is certainly going to drive that. Um, in terms of the evolution of efficiency, it's actually interesting because um, it's actually been, I think, fairly linear over time. Um, the real innovation um, and uh, you know, sort of exponential impact on solar has actually been in in you know cost down, right? So that's where you see kind of you know your experience curves. You're, you know, 15, 20% per doubling of cost reduction. Um, efficiency comes with trade-offs. So I spent, you know, a large, most of my career at SunPower. SunPower is, you know, very well known for its high efficiency modules, for its, its, its special cell technology. And they were, for a very long time, and still today, right, they have the highest commercially uh, available efficiency modules. Um, the, the, the cost of that is in order to achieve that level of efficiency, you have a much more complex manufacturing process. And every step in a manufacturing process of solar cells, you have an issue of yield, right? So every time you move a cell with a robot from one station to another station, a certain percentage, you know, tiny percentage of those cells break. And the further along you, along you get in that process, the lower your yield is, right? And so, and you have, and, and by the way, in order to create that process, you have to invest a lot of money in, in specialized tools and you have to you have to have literally a bigger factory because your lines are longer, right? And so it becomes like this question of yeah, you can get higher efficiency, but at what cost? And what's that cost efficiency trade off? Because yeah, I can get an extra you know couple of points of absolute efficiency, but it may not be worth it, you know, if I can just add another couple of modules of lower efficiency to get, to create the same power in the same space, or in in in, in, a, in a little bit, a little bit more space, right? So that's how this kind of ends up playing out. And I think I think. You, you touched on something that, uh, Carl, that, that James asked us to cover that I, I missed, which is how have the costs of solar changed over time? Um, and I think that's that's sort of a, <laughs> a, a natural yeah, transition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so exactly. So the, the cost of solar has, has really come down over time, um, especially the installed costs for residential systems. Like Carl said, there's so much efficiency from learning within the industry, um, not only for the installers and the manufacturers and the sales teams, but also for the authorities having jurisdiction, the AHJs that have to come out and ex inspect these systems and provide the permits for them and, and the utilities that have to provide permission to, uh, to uh, operate and, and interconnect to the system. So, um, uh, For those that aren't intimately familiar, what is an AHJ? An AHJ is basically a local 
permitting office, so an authority having jurisdiction. Um, so they're the ones, you know, for instance, um, they're the local building code or electrical inspector or fire inspector, depending upon the municipality, that come out to your site and do either a spot check or a, a sort of a more in-depth check on the quality of the install of the system and make sure that everything is electrically set up and installed to code, whatever that code is at that individual municipality. Um, and that's, that's basically what, a, what an AHJ is in, in the role that they play in this space. What's really, I think, unique about solar is that each municipality is different and so and has their own processes. And so one of the, the largest sort of remaining sources of costs for, in particular, residential solar are these soft costs, which are permitting, inspections, interconnection, also sales and marketing. But I, I think permitting, interconnection, and inspection, PII, are, are things that are spoken about pretty regularly in an area that's, that's really ripe for um, innovation and, and bringing down costs, like what yeah. NREL is doing with yeah. the solar app. So. Yeah, I want to, I want to talk about cost down in a little slightly different framework too. Like I, I 100% agree with what you're saying, um, but like kind of going back a little bit of the history of solar and actually why why is solar where we are today? So the so f for the fundamental thing about solar technology, which it shares with some other technologies, which I'll talk about in a second, is that it's extremely modular. So you think about it, you know, at the beginning of the industry when the industry first launched. And I'm gonna I'm gonna put space applications aside for a second, okay? Like terrestrial applications. Where was Bell Labs selling a PV module? Well, they were selling a, like a fifty dollar a watt PV module in a place where the only thing that could provide power to that thing was a PV module, right? It's like a buoy fully out in the ocean or whatever, or some remote tiny little light, right? And then you get into applications where like, oh, I need five modules to power my like off grid, you know. Yurt or whatever in Humboldt, where I'm, don't want to connect to the utility because you know for reasons, right? Uh, well, that's like actually like one of the places where the solar industry started. It was people who were like had a lot of cash, were not really cost constrained, needed power, and you know were kind of in the middle of nowhere and didn't want to connect to the utility. So that was like that was like the original original market. And so, but you could do that because you could buy five of these things and you could set up like a one kilowatt system. That was possible. Like as opposed to any other kind of power generation where just the increment of it is larger, right? So the way that manufacturing learning curves work, the fundamental thing for solar, is that just in general, when you manufacture a widget, that widget gets comes down in cost um, by some percentage for every doubling of manufacturing volume. You know, in solar, we've had, I don't know how many doublings, right? Um, but like the but the, the the basic principle is that like that that's that PV module whether it's 100 watts like it was forever ago or 500 watts now you're still producing it in like increments of a couple hundred watts and so you know that mass production cost down is a huge lever huge lever that's that's why we've been able to create this kind of um, those curves and it, the same thing exists for batteries right that's why lithium ion batteries it's this little thing that goes into your cell phone went to your laptop now all of a sudden it's in your car now all of a sudden it's in your house now there's containers 40 foot containers full of them 50 of those containers on a site 
Well, guess what's inside of those things? A pouch cell or a cylindrical cell, just like it's in your laptop 10 years ago. It's scale. Also, uh, going back to history, Albert Einstein got the Nobel Prize for the photoelectric effect. That was what he got his Nobel Prize in. So there That's you go. a good, that is a good That's DER a... trivia. No kidding. Uh, Nobel Prize for physics in 1921. It was, you know, obviously theore theoretical, theoretical physics. So I don't know if it was directly, who knows? That's actually a good question. Um, hard to believe we haven't covered this yet, but um, I think now um, it would be helpful to just kind of describe like the world of solar and the different types. Um, you know, maybe people have heard, we've talked about rooftop or commercial, or maybe people have heard about community solar. Like Carl, I know you had some thoughts on this. Like how would you describe the categories or characteristics or categorizations of solar so people could kind of understand what like all the buckets or types are? Yeah, uh, sure. I can take a crack at it. Um, so, you know, I think really the one fundamental distinction is what we what we would refer to as behind the meter versus in front of the meter solar. So behind the meter solar is your residential, your commercial, maybe even, you know, industrial scale. The, the, the main point being that you have a photovoltaic system that's installed for by a customer, right, for their own use to offset their utility use. So you're offsetting retail rate electricity. Um, there are some exceptions. I won't go into that, but that's 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 the, basically the the the, um, the rubric. Front of the meter, right, is where you're installing basically as a wholesale power generator in some form or another. And again, it gets very complicated in terms of like how offtake contracts are structured and like whether you're actually getting wholesale value or some other value. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, you're kind of delivering that energy directly to the utility grid you're not offsetting retail electricity. Um, you're, you're operating like a power plant, like any other power plants connected to the grid. So that's sort of one, one distinction. The other distinction I think people tend to think of is a term in terms of scale, right? So residential, typically, you know, you're gonna be somewhere between, I don't know, four and 10 kilowatts. Um, commercial can be kind of in the low end, like a small SMB, small medium business, you know, could be 10 kilowatts up to, but it could be all the way up to a megawatt, right? You see, in fact, going back to history, like when I first joined uh, joined the industry, we were very excited when I was at Powerlight, which is a, a pioneer in the, in the CNI solar space, um, because we sold the first like one megawatt rooftop system that had ever been seen in the world. It was like an amazing moment. Now that's like, now that's like, that's like bread and butter for, you know, hundreds of companies, right? Anyway, um, so that's so that you know we I think at one point uh, we did a some massive roof somewhere that was like it was like a ten megawatt rooftop system or something like that kind of that 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 sort of thing exists, but it's unusual, right? And then and then you can also you you could have also like ground mount right um, in some cases you can have carports right in commercial right it makes more sense to put it in a cart on a on a carport. Um, so you actually have a pretty broad range of scale and behind the meter. Front of the meter, you have everything from what we call kind of like um, wholesale dis distribution interconnected. So you're interconnecting at what we call medium voltage, um, you know, directly to the distribution system at say like 20 kV. Um, and that could be you know, anywhere from like a one megawatt to a kind of a 10 megawatt up to like maybe 20 megawatt, but still wholesale system connected to the distribution side, all the way up to, you know, a truly, you know, multi hundred megawatt utility scale system that's gonna interconnect directly into the transmission system. Um, that's going to look a lot like, you know, um, 
the large scale uh, conventional power plant. So again, that modularity, right? You can literally go down to like, you know, something that's sitting on your RV to, you know, hundreds of megawatts and the basic unit of it is the same. I think that's helpful. Um, yeah, one open question I had, I guess, is um, community solar. Uh, Spencer, I know you guys are pretty knowledgeable about that. Like, where does that fall in here? I, I, you know, it's kind of like a funky, it's maybe in front of the meter, but the compensation method, you know, is on your bill. So it's behind the meter. So just like curious how that fits in here as well. Yeah, totally. You know, community solar is designed for folks who either can't or don't want to put solar on their property is basically the idea. That's a big piece of it. And then the second piece of it is to try to aggregate buying power of people who live in various communities or in certain utility territories in order to drive better pricing and to support the investment in solar. Those are sort of the, in, in my mind, the two main reasons behind community solar sort of existing. And so it community solar is very much a one of those generating assets that's front of meter. Um, the on-bill credits that you receive for that are due to a an agreement that the sort of your utility has come to with that developer or with that sort of owner of the facility or, or subscription aggregator. And so it's not that you've signed necessarily a power purchase agreement to get a certain amount of kilowatt hours per month or per year from that solar per se. It's saying, I want to support solar and I'll get a, call it a 10% discount on a certain amount of electricity on my bill by supporting clean energy and participating in this community solar program. So it's a little bit more complex and there are some sort of, um, you know, accounting cartwheels that you kind of go through to explain how it works. Um, but that's, that's basically where it sits. Anything to add to that, Carl? No, I mean, yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a sort of a, a type of an offtake agreement, um, in a way. I think the other like kind of similar concept is what we have you know very commonly here in California around community choice aggregation, where um, you have a electricity provider that's effectively like a retailer, right? Except they're nonprofit and community owned or community managed, I should say. Um, that you know is basically procuring, um, you know, in many, in many cases actually building and installing um, solar, for example, that then. Um, is basically offsetting their purchases from the wholesale market. Um, it's almost like net metering for a for a quasi utility. Interestingly, um, uh, but uh, but that's another sort of similar kind of structure where you can go and subscribe. I can get like you know the the green plus you know plan from Marin Clean Energy, which is where I happen to be, and they're they're saying great, like we've allocated you know. That's gonna that's that's gonna create additionality because by subscribing to that plan, that's gonna require us to build more solar to make sure that we can deliver against that plan that your your electricity is one hundred percent green, right? Is the idea. Yeah, very cool. Um, and for people not as familiar with the hardware side, I think um, everyone is pretty familiar with the concept of like a solar panel. We've talked about that a lot, but like, what is like a solar system? You know, like what are the aspects of it? Just so people could actually understand it without having to install one themselves. 
And is there a better word than solar system so that you don't get people thinking you're talking about planets? <laughs> I usually say PV system, but not many people actually. A lot of people get confused by the term PV, which stands for photovoltaic, by the way. Um, there's a lot, first, first of all, we talk about panels, we talk about modules, we talk about PV. It's all kind of the same thing. It's that, that you know, that flat looking box that goes on your roof that does the magic. It collects photons, it turns them into electrons. That's a photoelectric effect, wave particle duality. It's freaking amazing. We'll talk about that another day. All right, that's the panel. So that so first of all, like, what is so? What actually? Let's talk. Like, can we talk about that? Like, what what the hell is that? So, uh, a PV module is made up of a bunch of cells. All right, each cell is a diode. It's a photoelectric diode. Right, it's kind of like a light emitting diode, but like in like backwards. In fact, actually, if you forward bias, interesting, little known fact: if you forward bias a PV cell. Right, you apply voltage across it, and it's dark. It actually is a light emitting diode. It actually emits um, infrared infrared light, and that's used to, to do quality control checks on solar modules. Because you can do a you can do a non-destructive detection uh, inspection of cell cracking by looking at the patterns by looking by, by by looking at that image. It's pretty cool. That's incredible. I you know I, I knew the theory that yeah okay it, it's a diode. I had no idea that there was a utility to just driving it essentially in reverse, that is fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an end-of-line test in every Modco. If you go visit a Modco, you'll see it. Um, anyway, but, uh, but anyway, the, the, the bottom line is like where I was going with that is that the, the module creates DC electricity, right? Because you, you, you pump in photons, outcomes, I mean, essentially a voltage. You connect a circuit, they flow through the circuit. Okay, it's direct current, all right? So um, fortunately or unfortunately, depending how you want to look at it, like we don't use direct current for the most part. We use alternating current. Why do we use alternating current? Well, because like our whole system was built up around like driving motors and driving generators and generators spin at 3,600 RPM, which creates 60 Hertz, which then conveniently drives a motor at 3,600 RPM, which is, or 1,800 RPM, which is very convenient if you're, you know, running a factory, right? So um, plus for other reasons. So, so anyway, so we, got, we have to match that 60 hertz. We have to match that 60 hertz waveform the utility provides us. So that's what an inverter does. An inverter is a very cool piece of electro, uh, power electronics that takes DC and synthesizes AC and AC waveform. People don't talk enough about inverters. It is a key, key, key piece of technology. Actually, if you think about like um, PV systems in general and the evolution of technology and where is this all going, two key pieces of technology were invented in the early 1990s that have enabled us to be where we are today. One is the inverter. One Specifically, the insulated gate bipolar transistor, IGBT, which is the heart of an inverter, which is the, the piece of power electronics that you actually is able to switch on and off. It's a transistor, right? So you switch it on and off very quickly, solid state. And you put these things in a certain arrangement, and by switching them on and off in the right sequence, you get uh, a waveform, right? It's, by the way, also in every variable speed drive, in every EV, right? Like it's a fundamental piece of technology for, for solar and really across electrification in general. Um, so that's what an inverter is and how an inverter works. Um, also invented at the same time frame was a lithium ion battery, by the way. So there you go. What a, what a fantastic time in history. Um, so very important that all these things happen to get us where we are today. Um, so those are like, I'd say those are kind of the two sort of major, you know, components. You think about what, what, what makes a PV system. You can make a PV system in your backyard a day. You buy a cheapo PV module. You buy a, you know, an inverter from the hardware store. 
and you plug those two things together, um, you're probably going to want a battery too. But, you know, you can make that work. Um, modern grid-tied inverters are very, very sophisticated, though, like because they have to synchronize with the utility grid um, and perform all sorts of grid protection functions. So we'll get into all that. I do have a question. Um, some terminology that uh, I struggle with, the, the difference, and others might as well. Um, what what's the major difference um, between and benefits between like a string or microinverter and kind of a, an array uh, single inverter? So as I've been talking a lot, I'm going to let Spencer take that one. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so microinverters and string inverters perform the same function of producing that waveform, that AC, you know, taking that DC electricity and turning it into alternating current, but they do it in different places, I think is the main way to think about it. So a string inverter, you could also call a central inverter. And for a typical residential solar install, you only need one of them. And it's going to go on the side of your house in your garage next to your utility meter. And it's going to aggregate all of the DC direct current output from the solar panels on your roof and convert that to that alternating current in a, in a single location. And so that's why you could call it a central inverter because it's all happening centrally. It's typically referred to as a string inverter because the, the panels are all on individual strings and like literally like a string of Christmas lights. Yeah, it's it, it, exactly. That's the, that is the most common um, analogy is a string of Christmas lights. So if you... It is, it is an imperfect analogy, but <laughs> an analogy nonetheless. <laughs> and so the idea is that you're connecting all of these solar panels and the output from all of these solar panels or call it up to 10 solar panels onto an individual string and then bringing that string of electricity back down to the inverter where it's, it's converted to alternating current. And most, you know, most typical string inverters today have, can accept four different strings, so you can have multiple different roof planes and not have to worry about the output from one of those impacting the output from the other. Can you go into that very quickly for the audience? Why the output of um, you know one uh, like a, a west-facing um, array would impact the output from a south-facing array if they were connected together? Totally. I'm gonna get into it and then have Carl correct me where I go wrong. So the 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 reason that Christmas lights or a string of Christmas lights are used as an analogy, an imperfect analogy for a string inverter or solar panels that are connected to a string inverter is that, you know, historically, if you had Christmas lights and one of them went out, all of the rest of the lights beyond it on that string of Christmas lights would go out. And when string inverters first came on the market, something similar would happen with the production from the panels behind a malfunctioning or even a shaded solar panel on that string. It's not necessarily that their production would be reduced, but I believe it's their their voltage would be reduced, I think. Is that right? To accommodate to, to get the whole string to be the same level of So yeah, so the so the, the current through a string, you can only like you can only have a certain current, right? And so yeah. 
it's a little nuanced though, because I think this is the, the reason why this analogy is imperfect is that like unlike a Christmas light, um, if you have a module in a string that is, that is you know underproducing, whether it be that shade or any other reason, um, there's actually protection in the module called a bypass diode that knocks that module out, and so the strings, which will actually recover the strings current, um, and so interestingly, you know these module level power electronics. Um, be they microinverters, which is just a, a PV module, an individual inverter for every PV module, or something called an optimizer, which um, basically is a, conditions the voltage coming out, of, it adjusts the voltage coming out of every module so that it balances the voltages, basically. Um, uh, ostensibly, right, solves that problem, right? Because it's like, okay, you can actually produce some energy out of this module that was shaded and would have otherwise knocked itself out of the string. In reality, yeah, I mean, it's not. It actually, it actually doesn't create a huge benefit. It's been over. It's been over marketed. I would say there's other reasons to have this architecture, um, unrelated to shading and all that. But, um, but as an analogy, right? You rabbit shutdown, different roof planes, short strings. And so that's that's where the roof planes come into into play. Is that one reason that a solar panel could be underperforming compared to? the other panels in a string is if you have panels all in a string on different roof planes. And so maybe in the morning, the sun is hitting some of those solar panels, but then as it progresses to the afternoon, the other solar panels are now being hit by the sun and are beginning to produce. And so because of that mismatch in production, that can change the output of the entire string of modules. So allowing for multiple strings on multiple different roof planes, you can get around that. Like Carl was talking about, the sort of the most popular central inverter, string inverter that's installed in the residential setting in the US is a solar edge inverter. And they're almost always installed with optimizers, which are these, right, they condition, as Carl said, condition voltage at the individual panel, their module level power electronics. Um, MLPE is an acronym that you'll hear thrown around. On the other hand, microinverters, instead of converting DC to AC electricity in one central location, do it at each individual panel. So they sit in the same spot that a power optimizer would, right underneath the solar panel. But instead of conditioning the voltage, they actually convert it at that individual site to AC electricity. So that's the main difference between microinverters and string inverters or optimized string inverters. And just before we leave, like we're, we're a little in the in the technical weeds, and just before we leave this, um, I think it'd be really good to have a brief primer on maximum power point tracking, since that's since that's pretty important. <laughs> you want to take that one, Carl? I was about to just. <laughs> Yes! Maximum PowerPoint tracking! I was waiting for that. No. I mean, do I? Yeah. So, um, so we talked about how a, a solar cell is, is a diode, right? So all diodes, if you have any, if you have familiarity with electronics, which probably not that many people do, but hey, what the heck. Um, the, uh, a diode has a, every diode has what's called a, a current voltage characteristic. And so solar cells, when you, when you hit them with uh, photons, they, they have a, a response characteristic of, of, of voltage and current, or in voltage times current, 
is power in watts, uh, you know, um, right? Amp subs volts equals watts. And so what you'll see is that as, as, um, as your voltage goes up, all right, your current goes up kind of linearly. And then you sort of hit a point where you hit kind of like a, a knee of the curve. And as you go over the knee of that curve, um, what happens is basically your voltage will drop as your current increases, your voltage drops very precipitously. So your power drops precipitously. And so if you were to plot that as a voltage versus power curve, there's a maximum point where for any actually given, any, any cell in a PV module, each individual cell has its own individual maximum power point. And when you string them together, the module has a maximum power point. And when you string modules together, the string has a maximum power point, which depends on a radiance, its temperature, and a bunch of other stuff. So in order to extract the most power out of a photovoltaic module or a string of modules, um, you have to keep the voltage and the current at exactly the right spot, which is matching kind of the, the impedance of the system. So if you think about what that means, it means, now remember, this is shifting around and changing all the time, right? There's a radiance changes, temperature changes, wind, the wind blows over the thing and cools it off, right? Um, a shadow transits across the module. So these, one of the things that an inverter does is it has, a, it has very sophisticated control algorithms that kind of dynamically adjust where the voltage and current are on that string to extract the maximum, the maximum possible power. And that's called maximum power point tracking. Um, it's actually really cool. And that's why I get excited about it. Okay, we should get out of the weeds now. Now, we, we've had our, our brief uh, foray into electrical engineering for the day. Um, one thing I did want to talk through here is um, <clears throat> what like a typical project looks like, kind of end to end, um, kind of starting with the, you know, sales marketing, and then like going into install, and then how customers actually like get compensated, or the system is compensated. Um, happy for either of you to take that. And I can appreciate that there's differences either behind the meter or in front of the meter. Totally. I'll, I'll take the first, the first stab at it, um, just given that sort of where Energy Sage sits in the market. So most, right, so people generally learn about solar, they're researching solar, they're researching their clean energy options. A lot of people will have somebody in their neighborhood come to their door probably and ask if they're interested in going solar. Uh, a number of people come to Energy Sage to request quotes from our installer network and receive quotes. Um, the process of actually gathering a solar quote is pretty straightforward, and you want to make sure that you go out and get you know three to five to compare. Um, but the solar installer will come out to your site. They can, or they can do a lot of this remotely these days. They'll take a look at the roof planes, the, the orientation of your house, um, the angle of your roof, and they'll ask you potentially to send a couple of pictures of your main electrical panel, things like that. They'll get a sense of how much electricity you're using. That's a really big aspect of this, is understanding how much electricity you need to be able to offset or avoid pulling from the electric utility with solar. You'll get a proposal that um, has a layout of the solar panels on your roof that has an estimate of how much those solar panels are going to produce in the first year. It'll have obviously the name of the installer and any sort of uh, reviews, recommendations, things like that, as well as usually 
Um, also the equipment that's included. So the, the brands of equipment that are included, whether or not you're getting what wattage solar panels you're getting, whether or not you're getting microinverters or string inverters, things like that. Um, and you can compare and contrast across a number of different metrics, whether it's uh, the installer reputation, the brand of the, the equipment that you're receiving, the cost of the equipment, and that's, you know, the, the installed cost of solar in the U.S. right now is, uh, has gone up over the last couple of years just with supply chain shortages, labor shortages, um, cost of capital getting more expensive, but I think is, is you know, around $3 per watt, maybe $3.50 per watt, maybe $4 per watt, depending upon where you live in the country. Um, the portion of that, I, I know you had a question earlier about sort of what the portion of that cost that comes from the equipment. Um, solar panels themselves are probably around 60 to 70 cents a watt, maybe at this point for, for top tier solar panels. Inverters might be 20 to 25 cents per watt. Um, so that gives you a sense of sort of the percentage of the overall cost that comes from that, that sort of hardware. Once you get the quotes, and you sort of are working with an installer to move further along in the process, you'll wanna have a site visit so that they can come out, take a look at your roof, make sure it's in appropriate condition to actually uh, install solar. They'll get into any crawl space or your attic, take a look at the rafters, rafter spacing, things like that. Um, finalize the proposal, see if there are any other upgrades that you need, whether to a main electrical panel or if you want an EV charger, a battery, things like that. And then once you sign a contract, the and you know we haven't talked about financing yet, but there are, there are a couple of different ways that you can finance a system, cash purchase, a solar loan, or a lease or power purchase agreement, um, you know, sort of where you aren't the owner of the system. There are a lot of benefits to that as well as, as Carl can, can speak to much better than I can. Um, but once you sign the, the system agreement, uh, the installer will begin the process of pulling permits, um, the actual, and making sure that they have all the equipment, scheduling an install day. Most solar installs can happen in a single day at this point. Um, they run typically one, one crew of four people two people who get started up on, on top of the roof, putting all the, the flashing, mounting, and racking in place to hold the solar panels in place on your roof. Those things are super strong. You can stand on them and they, they won't budge. Um, and then the uh, two other folks who are electricians who are getting started with your main electrical panel and the inverter and making sure that everything's wired all together um, at the side of the house or next to your electrical meter um, or main electrical panel. Uh, and then once everything's sort of laid out and set up, it's just the process of getting solar panels, carrying solar panels up onto the roof on a ladder, putting them in the right place, connecting them to either the optimizers or the microinverters, um, and then screwing them into place and making sure that everything's sort of laid out the way that you want it to be. Um, and, you know, each individual solar panel, once everything's laid out, might take, depending upon how steep the roof is, connecting a single solar panel probably takes less than five minutes from ground to actually screwed into the to the racking. Um, so that's that's sort of, you know, once once that's all done, then you have uh, final inspections from your local utility and your municipality. 
once you get the go-ahead to actually interconnect in the permission to operate your system, you either go out and flip the switch on the side of your house or your installer can do it remotely depending upon the, the inverter that you're using. Um, what, I, what I miss there, Carl? No, you got it. Um, I think there's like a couple of things I would just add on to that. One, um, I would say like, you know, in most places, the, um, it is fair to say that the timeline to get residential solar from like the time you sign to the time it's up and operating can be rather extended, a matter of, you know, many months. Um, in most places that is because, not because of the time it takes to actually install this or to actually do anything, but because we're waiting for somebody to do something. So you're waiting to get permits or you're waiting for the utility to, do, to take an action or you're waiting for permission to interconnect. Um, permission to operate um, and so that's actually I would say you know one of the one of the lesser understood soft costs that we talk about um, one of the things that happens is like when people have to wait they get frustrated when they get frustrated they cancel when they get cancel companies like ours have to spend a bunch of money on a customer that we didn't actually acquire in the end and that's actually turns into a soft cost um, so we like to avoid those things we like to try to pull in up cycle times um, and um, uh, but some of some of that is, is inevitable um, the other thing I think I would just, just touch on briefly is, is on the, the, the financing side of it. Um, you know, th there is, yeah, there's basically three major options. There's cash. So you basically take, you know, 15, $20,000, whatever it is. Um, you put it on your roof instead of in the bank and you make money off that. Um, the other option is to take out a loan. You still, you still own it. You pay that loan off after a certain period of time. It's just like a home improvement loan. Um, and the third is like kind of unique actually to solar, which is uh, which is a lease model where basically it's owned by a third party if you don't own it. So a, a third party entity owns it and you're paying for the service. So the service you're paying for, you're paying for electricity that's that this other entity from this asset is generating that happens to be on your roof. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that you don't have to, there's like no money down. So you literally you know start saving money on your bills the moment it turns on, um, which is pretty attractive for some people. Now you're not saving as much as if you had, you know, in, made the investment yourself um but you know for a lot of people it's like hey you know i saved a little bit compared to the utility and i make i'm using green energy and i feel good about that um i have more independence from the more independence when the grid goes down for example if you have a battery with it etc and i think one one thing that you just touched on there carl that's really important that we haven't talked about yet is how you actually save with solar which is which is is sort of a crucial piece of the whole the whole puzzle here and you know you you save with solar because when you produce when your solar panels produce electricity they offset consumption from your utility and so you're really just avoiding electric bills and each of the ways that Carl just laid out to finance your system allows you to avoid paying electric bills or to reduce the amount that you you spend on your electric bill um, any given month and so with a, you know, so for instance, if you're paying $100 in electricity costs per month to today, if you put enough solar on your roof, you should be able to avoid all of that or all of that outside of non-bypassable charges or customer interconnection charges, which might be only $10 or $15 a month. So you're, you're saving money straight away. Now the question is, how did you actually pay for and sorry, the reason that happens is because when you are producing more electricity than you are using on site, you send that electricity to the grid, run your meter in reverse. 
when you are using more electricity than you're producing on your roof, you pull from the grid and run your meter forward, you're billed on net. That's how net metering works. And so, and then also if you're using exactly the amount of electricity that your solar panels are producing, you're just, you're not pulling from the grid. So it's just avoided cost offset, right? And so if you have, if you pay for your system in cash, that's a, that's a sunk cost. It's all up front. And then month one, now, whatever your savings are on your utility bill are your savings. But you've put a lot of money down in order to achieve those savings. Over 20, 25 years, you're going to see, like Carl mentioned, higher net savings over the cost of the system. But you have to have access to that capital and be willing to invest it in a solar panel system to actually get those highest level of savings over 20, 25 years. With a solar loan, until very, very recently, it was very easy to design a solar loan where your solar loan payments were less than what you would have otherwise paid your utility in electric bills. Um, so in other words, if you had a $100 a month electricity bill and you're offsetting 90, 95% of that, uh, so you still have a $10 a month bill, you should be able to get a monthly loan payment at $75 or $70 or $80. So you're saving, again, more or less from day one without having to put down any money to install the system. Um, and then at the end of the loan term, you own the system. Uh, so you're able, because you own the system, you can take advantage of the tax credit, the federal investment tax credit, which is a 30% tax credit for solar. Um, and you get the benefit of owning the system at the end of its life. A lease PPA is the same thing, but you don't own the system and you're not taking out a, a loan. And like Carl said, you're reducing your electricity spending from day one, which is is um, pretty enticing. Yeah, no doubt. Like what I've learned talking to people is like there's a lot of details here and it depends like market by market and the like compensation models no doubt are changing. And then to your point, and I would guess this is probably related like in the loan model the like interest rates have had like a pretty decently sized impact on like the economics for customers too. So it starts to get pretty, pretty difficult to figure out, or at least much more complicated than just a simple, yeah, you're definitely going to save. And you know, here it is. Yeah. Um, well, in the interest of time, um, I think we're going to wrap it up here. Um, this has been really, really great. Carl Spencer, thank you so much for joining. Um, I think as a follow-up to the guests, we're going to try and collect a few more resources to kind of go deeper if people are interested um, and teach the audience how to fish a bit for themselves. Um, in general, though, um, thank you so much for joining and really, really appreciate the time. Thanks for having us. Thanks.